I was sitting in the reading room of the National Archives of India in Delhi, methodically going through the index of the East India Company's Foreign Department Proceedings, volume 1840-49, K to Z, when I found her under M.Y. Pension to Mayali, Dancing Girl, from Jaipur Share of Sampar Lake Funds. It was my first foray into the official records of British colonial rule in India, and I was there to see if I could find any traces at all of the Indian singers and dancers that we know from paintings and travel writings of the time filled the long nights, dreams and beds of many an East India Company officer in the early decades of the 19th century. So far, I'd had little luck. And yet here she was, Miley Dancing Girl. But not just Miley, a whole set of musicians, dancers and other performers named as so-called pensioners of the salt revenues of Sampar Lake, which lies between Jaipur and Jodhpur in the desert lands of Rajasthan. Intrigued, I ordered up all the files I could find on Sampar Lake pensions. Out of the archives came detailed half-yearly financial accounts for the brief period between 1835 and 1842 when the East India Company sequestered the revenue and salt factories of the Sampar Salt Lake that rightfully belonged to the independent Rajput states of Jaipur and Jodhpur. In 1818, faced with the company's overwhelming military might, the major Rajput states had signed a treaty in which the British offered them political and military protection in exchange for heavy cash tribute. By the early 1830s, Jaipur and Jodhpur were swimming in debt and refusing to cooperate with the British. So in 1835, the company seized the lake at Sampar, which is still one of India's largest sources of that most precious of commodities, salt. The British only returned Sampar Lake to Jaipur and Jodhpur in 1842, when, having been brought to the brink of ruin by the company's protection racket, their arrears were written off by the government in Calcutta. The Sampar Lake accounts for 1835-42 to included long lists of local institutions and individuals who had historical rights in the salt revenues of Sampar, and meticulous details of how and how much they were paid. And among the individual recipients were several named performing artists, including four dancing girls who performed together at all the religious festivals. Two of these dancing girls, and I shall use the more respectful term courtesan, were clearly more important than all the others. Umda, a Muslim name, and Mayali, a Hindu. What particularly drew my eye to Mayali was a set of exculpatory notes beside her name in the margins of the half-yearly accounts for 1842. These suggest that Mayali put up a successful fight against the third and last British superintendent of Sampar Lake, Lieutenant Robert Morrison, for her right to receive payment in salt rather than cash from the lake. The 1835 accounts show that Jaipur paid Mayali two and a third rupees in cash every six months, specifically for performing at festivals of the ritual calendar, and also kept her on a monthly cash retainer amounting to 45 rupees per year. But Mayali 
was also entitled to an annual salt stipend of 25 morns of salt. How much was a salt mourned? In cash terms, at Sampar in 1835, her salt was worth wholesale six and a quarter rupees, a significant but not enormous part of her annual income. But in quantity, Miley's annual salt stipend of 25 morns exceeded her personal requirements dozens of times over. But throughout 1842, Morrison tried to force Miley and all other recipients of salt to take payment instead in cash. Morrison had received a letter from the Governor-General in Calcutta stating that a computation of four rupees per 25 morns had been sanctioned in lieu of the salt hitherto bestowed on the petitioners. That's more than a third lower than the price in 1835. This letter was not necessarily a government order to pay cash in lieu of salt, but Morrison willingly appears to have taken it as such. Miley refused. Morrison noted blandly in the margins of the accounts to June that Miley was paid in salt previous to the receipt of the government orders sanctioning a compensation in money. But he wrote that a whole year after receiving the Governor-General's letter, and it seems to have been a desperate excuse for his failure to make her accept cash payment, because six months later she was again paid in salt. The Jodhpur government, having saved a payment of salt to this pensioner, an equal portion has been granted in lieu of cash by Jaipur. Miley Dancing Girl 1, the East India Company, nil. That is all we currently know about Miley herself as a historical individual. But there's clearly a great deal more behind her story. Why was Miley's salt stipend so important to her? Was her intransigence simply mercenary, a refusal to accept the reduced cash rates she was being offered, or to let go of a profitable sideline selling salt? But then, why was paying Miley in salt so important to Jodhpur and Jaipur that they went out of their way to fulfil her demand in defiance of Lieutenant Morrison? Was her resistance and theirs based on long-standing Mughal and Rajput notions of namak halali, or faithfulness to the salt, namak, and therefore in some way political? Or was there some larger ritual or cultural significance to the salt of the Sampar Lake that we need to pay attention to here? After all, Mayali herself was ritually auspicious, a powerful hereditary courtesan dedicated to the service of Hindu ceremonies. Come to that, why did Lieutenant Morrison draw up such minutely detailed accounts? Why do we have a record of Mayali's existence at all? And what does all of this tell us about relations between the British colonial state and the Indian peoples whose lives and cultures they were increasingly encroaching upon during the 1830s and 40s? The lake at Sampar is India's biggest inland salt lake and one of its largest single sources of commercial salt, producing about 200,000 tonnes a year. It is also a wetland of international importance for migrating water birds, such as the pink flamingo. The lake is located about 70 kilometres west of Jaipur. Historically, the border of the states of Jaipur and Jodhpur ran through the lake, and both states had dominant interests in its salt production. 
all was watched over benevolently by the goddess of the lake, Shakambari Mata, the avatar of Parvati concerned with Earth's fertility, whose shrine projects out into the lake beneath a striking rocky outcrop. The lake covers an area of approximately 225 square kilometers, but is shallow and is a fine example of a geological sink. While five rivers run into it, carrying with them mineral salts that continually enrich the lake's salt content, the lake has no natural outlet other than evaporation. The water levels are replenished annually during the monsoon, and it is the evaporation of the water between monsoon seasons that naturally leaves behind salt deposits. When the company took over the lake in 1835, they asked the Sarishtadar, the chief Indian officer of the Delhi Customs House, to brief them on salt production at Sampar. He wrote, The salt is produced by the accumulation of rainwater in that lake throughout the summer and cold seasons. When the wind agitates the surface of the water and thereby extends the dimensions of the lake, the additional space thus immersed, after water subsides, is found encrusted with the saline matter. Over the centuries, highly skilled communities of salt workers, whom the British at Sampar called burrs, have used their intimate knowledge of the lake's seasonal cycles to maximize the production of salt through the building of dams, salt pans and earthworks. Writing in 1839, the second British superintendent at Sampar, Captain John Ludlow, described the burrs as a hardy race, inured to labour and acquainted with the mode of taking advantages of circumstances to produce the greatest amount of salt after an abundant season of rain and of obtaining a supply from the dams in the bed of the lake. It is the custom, when the waters are out, to form large beds along the shallows, and the burrs are on watch day and night to take advantage of gusts of well wind, which, by raising the water at the east of the lake, enables them to open channels of communication to fill the salt beds and again close them ere, on the wind abating, the water has time to recede. Such opportunities are anxiously looked for, and much of the success of ordinary seasons depends upon the manner in which this duty is performed. For centuries before the British, Sampar Lake had been worked as one of India's largest and finest sources of salt. Under Mughal rule, Sampar salt was exported in large quantities across the country, particularly into Hindustan and Bengal. But in 1708, the joint armies of Jaipur and Jodhpur rose in rebellion against the Mughals and defeated them at Sampar. Jaipur and Jodhpur joyously took the lake and its major salt manufacturing town back into their joint control. It was also at Sampar in 1708 that Sawai Jai Singh, the great founder of the city of Jaipur, was proclaimed Maharaja. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, Sampar salt was central to Jaipur's prosperity as its only major industrial source of revenue. But Sampar and its salt also seem to have been central to Jaipur's ideas of sovereignty. It is perhaps little wonder then that the East India Company's seizure of Sampar in 1835 was followed by various acts of resistance, an assassination attempt, corruption, labour strikes, not to mention Mayali's individual act of defiance. But courtesans like Mayali themselves were believed to safeguard Jaipur's prosperity and sovereignty. We need to step outside the company records for a moment 
to consider how these two concepts, prosperity and sovereignty, were bound up in Jaipur with both courtesans and Sampar salt. Jaipur has long been a byword for Hindustani classical music and Kathak dance. In modern times, it is synonymous with its distinguished guild of singers, the Jaipur Gharana, founded by Ustad Aladiya Khan, born in 1855. But courtly musical life in Jaipur in the earlier 19th century is rather mistier. This is largely because Jaipur politics between the accession of Maharaja Jagat Singh II in 1803 and the end of our time frame, 1842, were rather messy, dominated by a series of powerful women. You can see a timeline and portraits of all my key players on the website where you found this podcast. The first of these powerful women was a Muslim courtesan, Ras Kapoor. Rajput rulers could spend absurd amounts of money on favourite courtesans. In an 1830 court case, the Raja of Kishingar attempted to get 18,000 rupees back from his erstwhile favourite. But Maharaja Jagat Singh II of Jaipur made Ras Kapoor his political consort. James Todd, the famous scholar of Rajasthani traditions, loathed them both. We shall not disgrace these annals with the history of a life which discloses not one redeeming virtue amidst a cluster of effeminate vices. The pranks he played with the essence of camphor, Ras Kapoor, at one time led to serious thoughts of deposing him. In the height of his passion for this Islamite concubine, he formally installed her as queen of half his dominions, struck coin in her name, and not only rode with her on the same elephant, but demanded forms of reverence towards her, which were paid only to his legitimate queens. Worst of all, Jagat Singh's affair with Ras Kapoor meant that he died without a legitimate heir in 1818, just after signing the treaty with the East India Company that made Jaipur a British tributary at the heavy price of one-fifth of Jaipur's annual revenue. But lo and behold, it transpired that one of his legitimate queens, the Patiani Rani, was heavily pregnant, and her infant son was installed in 1819 as Jai Singh III under her regency. The Bhatiani Rani obstinately resisted the interference of the company in her rule, installing an actively anti-British Prime Minister, Judaram. The young Maharaja, meanwhile, was allegedly kept an imbecile, and after his mother died, the poor boy was poisoned, probably by Judaram, in 1835. He was succeeded by his own infant son, Ram Singh II, then just two years old. The upshot of this instability and shifting political sands is that there are fewer records and paintings of court culture specific to these decades. European sources help, but European observers generally misunderstood North Indian courtesans as mere entertainment, a spectacle to be enjoyed or not. Victor Jacquemont's description of one such evening in Jaipur in 1832 indicates that at least some high-flying Jaipur courtesans were indistinguishable in their music, dance and dress from their sisters across Hindustan. Towards the end, I noticed that one girl was dancing admirably well. Her performance represented someone flying a kite. 
She mimed, lifting it up in a timid, uncertain manner, then tugged at its string and watched it rise proudly. And when it was launched in the upper regions of the sky, scarcely visible, she followed its twists and turns with intense interest and concern. Her facial expressions and her gestures formed a beautiful poetic language to describe the fluctuating fortunes of this imaginary object. The courtesan's kite dance was famous right across North India. On the website where you found this podcast, you can see a painting of it from Lucknow. Likewise, James Todd commented on the Maharana of Udaipur's preference for tappa, the fashionable art song genre that had originated in Punjab, but had grown to its current heights of success in Lucknow. All this suggests Jaipur, in the period we're talking about, was fully integrated into the pan-regional art music culture that had developed under the Mughals. On the other hand... Jaipur's best courtesans were, at the same time, employees of the state's Department of Virtuosos, the Gunijan Khana, and had rights and obligations specific to Jaipur's state. Most particularly, they had year-round ritual auspicious functions to underpin Jaipur's prosperity and sovereignty through dancing and singing at court ceremonies and religious events. The Jaipur Gunijan Khana records for a later period, 1882 to 1933, show that most courtesans in state employ were Muslim, like many of their sisters across Hindustan. But they were recorded under the Jaipur-specific category Bhagtaniya, or Bhagtan, from the word Bhagat, devotee. This further underlines their special ritual auspicious role in Jaipur state ceremonial. In a stroke of luck, Bhagtans appear as a special group in James Skinner's entry on types of courtesan in his 1825 Persian-language description of communities, probably based on information he got from James Todd. Skinner's entry suggests that the rights and obligations of the Bhagtan in the Rajput areas close to Delhi, which include Jaipur, were very similar to the rights and obligations of the Bhagtan attached to the Jaipur Gunijan Khana later in the 19th century. Courtesans enter the presence of Rajas and bless all the patrons of the Mehfil with the beautiful voice, the singing of melody and of the ghazal, the gesture of hand and foot, supplications, languishing glances, eye movements and attentions towards the patrons. Through witnessing dance and hearing music, the Rajas are rendered replete. They write for gifted ones, different types of inams, property grants, and in this way, those who perform are approved a measure of power and property wealth. Both Hindu and Muslim courtesans perform dance drama, pure dance and music, and bhaktans specifically perform service for their lords. Because they are perennially adorned with gold, embellishments, light, jewels, the clothing and dress of the apsara, and with beautiful supplications and sheer delight, all the people of the world call them Mangalamukhi, auspicious presences. In the homes of Rajas to whose service they owe allegiance, they also teach the elite women the arts of dance, instrumental playing, smooth talking and coquetry.
The Bhagdan Skinner was writing about turned out to be the very type of courtesan employed in the Jaipur court at the time. The city palace in Jaipur has a number of portraits of named court figures for exactly this period, including one of an important Bhagdan. Likewise, the Gunajanhana records from 1882 to 1933 also resonate with Skinner's description and with the Sampar pension records. The Gunajanhana employed elite male musicians and a large cohort of Bhagtans, as well as buffoons, mimics and magicians, bahurupias and bhans. Bhagtans danced for temple deities, performed for the men of the court and their guests, and taught the elite women music and dance. They were also required for all festivals, including those that involved public street processions like Gangor, and those like Raslila, where they enacted virtuosic dance dramas. Their obligation of ritual service came with a number of rites. Bhagdan posts in the Gunijanhana were frequently hereditary, and they were paid well in cash, but they were also given grants of food, transport, land, houses, and income from villages. Critically, employees of the Gunijanhana also referred to themselves as salt eaters. In 1931, a hereditary male musician asked to be promoted to a higher salaried post, not on the grounds of merit, but because I am an old employee, your old salt eater, someone who had eaten Jaipur's salt, figuratively and literally, and to whom, having been faithful to the salt, the Jaipur ruler owed a permanent obligation of care and protection. Without salt, we die. And the notion of faithfulness to the salt, namakalali, is very old in Eurasian cultures. The idea that eating a man's salt created a reciprocal obligation or contract was central to notions of loyalty, protection and honour throughout the Mughal and Rajput domains and endured well through the colonial period. The breaking of a salt bond, namakharami, on either side, was a very serious matter. The eating of salt could also have significant religious resonances. According to myth, Shikambhari Devi, the goddess of Sambar Lake, turned what was originally a plain of silver into a salt lake at the request of her devotees, thus creating a salt bond between the goddess and the people and wildlife who relied on the provisions of Sambar Lake. But in the 18th century, the Maharajas of Jodhpur and Jaipur also gave 1,500 morns of Sampar salt between them every year to the temple in Jaipur of Govindevji, the incarnation of Krishna, who is the tutelary deity of the rulers of Jaipur. This gift of salt revenues and salt to Govindevji continued during the British control of the lake. This highlights the strong connection between Sampar salt and religious obligations. This becomes even clearer when we look at the charitable grants the East India Company paid out on Jaipur's behalf from the Sampar Lake accounts between 1835 and 42. Nearly all the recipients were local to Sampar, and it is striking that Jaipur and Jodhpur had so much care towards the people and institutions of the lake. The first section of the accounts is dominated by cash payments to about 50 Hindu temples and other religious institutions, including the Shakampari Temple, the Sampar Jain Temple, and the Sufi Shrine of Husamuddin Chishti. The next section documents people and institutions paid in cash on account of festivals. 
This section intimately connects the Bhagtans Mayali, Umda, Gangli and Kesur, who appear together in this list, with the festivals at which they performed. All of the festivals in the accounts are still celebrated in Jaipur state. Navratri, and especially the women's Gangur procession, Jaljulani, Vijay Dashami, Sharad Purnima with its performances of Raslila, Diwali, Govardhan Puja, Makar Sankranti, the kite festival, Holi, Mahashivratri, and the Muslim festival of Maharam, with cash set aside for tazias or tomb effigies. Cash was also set aside separately for oil, with extra oil for Diwali, rust powder for Holi, Jaldhara or holy water for Shiva, and for cows in the hot season. Cash and grain were set aside for the Jain temples to feed ants, fish, and dogs. A number of other performers also appear in these accounts. Two important male musicians, a female drum player, three more dancing girls, a band or buffoon, a troupe of magicians or bahurupias, and a trumpeter. There are a pile of other named individual recipients in these accounts. Those who can be identified tend to be religious specialists and mendicants, or civil employees, but also estates workers, sweepers, runners, washermen, the repair of the courthouse for a festival. There are two things that I think are worthy of note here. The first is the symbiotic connection of the salt of the Sampar Lake with its religious life, Hindu, Muslim and Jain, and with those performers who made ritual events especially auspicious, the Bhagtans and other performers, chief among whom were Mayali and Umda. The salt, the ritual calendar, the performers, all were bound up together in ensuring the prosperity of the people of Sampar and the states of Jodhpur and Jaipur. And Jodhpur and Jaipur reciprocally were bound to support the fullness of life at Sampar in return from the salt revenues that accumulated to their state treasuries. The second thing to note is that this is a really wide cross-section of people living at Sampar, from puns to fakirs to qazis to sweepers. Everyone seems to have had some rights in the salt. None of these people work directly with the salt as labourers, overseers, merchants or transport, and yet they all lived off and benefited from the salt of the lake. Everyone in Sampar seems to have had rights to share in Shakambari Devi's bounty. This gets to the heart of the perverse reason Lieutenant Morrison left us such minutely detailed accounts for Sampar Lake pensions. Like the East India Company, we're used to thinking of salt as a commodity to be sold at a profit and taxed. But in fact, as Mahatma Gandhi realised, salt is a natural commons. Like air or water, salt is abundantly available in nature, and human beings and other animals need it to survive. I think the conflict reflected in the records of the company's fraught management of the lake reveals the previous existence of a salt commons at Sambhar between the states and peoples of Jaipur and Jodhpur, where the British, instead, saw a state revenue monopoly. To be a commons, something does not have to be free of charge. It simply needs to be accessible on a reasonable and agreed basis to all who hold it in common. I think this was the case with salt at Sampar before 1835, and it's partly why the British met such resistance to their management of Sampar. 
To cut a long story short, the East India Company sequestered the revenue and the salt factories of the Sambar Lake in 1835 because since the Treaty of 1818, both Jaipur and Jodhpur had got into massive arrears and could not or would not pay them. The company operated effectively as a protection racket, invading or threatening independent states with their overwhelming military might and then imposing asymmetrical treaties in exchange for said states paying huge sums for company regiments and civil agencies to be parked on their land to quell disorder and help the states manage their affairs. The seizure of Sampar happened hard on the heels of the suspicious death of Jaipur's young Maharaja in February 1835. And the coincidence of these threats to Jaipur's sovereignty almost ended in tragedy. Due to Ram, the Prime Minister was suspected of poisoning Jai Singh in a grab for power, and the British moved to support the new Queen Regent, the mother of Ram Singh, in exiling a man they were opposed to anyway. On the 4th of June, 1835, while the agent to Rajputana Major Alves was leaving a meeting with the Queen Regent, an assassin in Deuteram's pay made a dramatic attempt on his life on the steps of the palace. According to eyewitnesses... A man sprung out from the armed crowd assembled near them and inflicted three sword wounds upon the resident. John Ludlow, with much promptitude, threw himself upon the assassin and bore him to the ground, by this act probably causing the third blow to fall with little effect. Alves immediately turned and saw Ludlow on the prostrate assassin, keeping him down with all his strength, when he himself knelt and held the villain's extended arm and sword to the ground until satisfied that he was secured by the residency chaprasses. Getting into a palanquin, he passed unmolested out of the Tripolia, attended by Ludlow, who, fearing he might faint from loss of blood, got on a horse and galloped to the residency to prepare Dr Motley for his patient. Several other company officers were still at the palace, and an angry crowd gathered, inflamed by a rumour that the foreigners had murdered someone inside. But the conspirators also used the occupation of Sampar as a grievance to whip up the crowd further against the British. Dodging missiles, Lieutenant McNaughton, then Alf's secretary, made it through the crowd alive and unscathed. But Alves' assistant, Captain Blake, was chased down, cornered in a temple, and hacked to pieces. This less than auspicious start to the company's tenure at Sampar heralded many more subtle acts of resistance and sabotage to come. But it also neatly introduces us to the three successive company superintendents of the lake, Lieutenant John Duncan McNaughton, Captain John Ludlow and Lieutenant Robert Morrison. Of the three, it was the older Welshman, Ludlow, who had the most distinguished career in India. But he largely intervenes in the middle of the Sampar story as a safe pair of hands to handle a scandal. For two men with such similar backgrounds, McNaughton and Morrison had surprisingly different personalities. Both were born in India within a month of each other in 1810. Both their fathers were judges in Indian courts, and both were fluent in Persian and Hindustani. But Morrison's mother, Sophia, was illegitimate and half-Indian. This hint of miscegenation clearly caused him trouble and embarrassment when he signed up as a cadet, and he seems to have resolved thenceforward to be more British than the British in his dealings with Indians. 
McNaughton was appointed superintendent in charge of Sambar when the British took over in 1835. He brought with him a trusted deputy, Pandit Ganga Ram, whom he appointed as Sarishtadar, or head Indian overseer, of the salt factories. Ganga Ram was an outsider and had previously held several company positions in charge of minor customs houses around Delhi. At the beginning of 1837, McNaughton was promoted to superintendent at Ajmer, and almost instantaneously on Ludlow's arrival at Sampar to replace McNaughton, he removed Ganga Ram from his post, put him under close house arrest, and investigated him for corruption. Ludlow received a complaint that Ganga Ram was systematically extorting money on salt contracts from Asapura, the foreman of the Burrs, the highly skilled and collectively powerful local labourers whose job it was to manufacture the salt. According to a plaintiff statement by a salt works clerk, Madhu Singh, The Pandit took bribes in every department, whether in gift, salt payment of pensioners, Jagirdar accounts in sales of salt to Bioparis or in boom payments. The tyranny which he practiced is as notorious as the sun at noon. The trial of Ganga Ram generated reams of paper that made it all the way to the Court of Directors in London, not least because McNaughton leapt hotly to his defence in such sympathetic terms he was reprimanded. Pandit Ganga Ram is a man conspicuous for his integrity, zeal and general good conduct. I consider Ganga Ram the victim of gross injustice and wanton oppression and it is my request that I be arraigned at the same bar with him. If after a deliberate and careful investigation any improper conduct be proved against the Pandit, let the heavier punishment fall on me. But they also had to tread very delicately because Ganga Ram was the company's man. They were acutely conscious that their tenure at Sambara was temporary and they were responsible for its proper management to Jaipur and Jodhpur. What seems to have happened is that the Burrs and some other locals in the Sambar Salt establishment were personally disadvantaged by the imposition of a different way of doing business at Sambar under Ganga Ram's headship. Both Asapura and Madhu Singh had been pushed aside by the new regime. McNaughton had sacked both of them for gross and repeated misconduct. So they cannily used McNaughton's promotion to Ajmer to get rid of the hated outsider Ganga Ram. Reading the trial transcripts, one gets the sense that payers of so-called bribes were not offended by the idea that employees all the way along the chain would take a bit on the side. The witness, Jogal Kishore, testified he simply assumed this was the company's way of doing things. Rather, it seems the complainants were affronted by having to pay the foreign Sarishtadar cash to access something they had long-standing customary rights in. Because the trial evidence shows that everybody involved in the salt industry at Sambar had an open right to literally rake a bit off the top. It was a perquisite of those who worked in the industry. According to Shivlal Mahajan's evidence, for example, before the arrival of the British, when the Malvi was in charge of the salt works, It was the custom that a remission of 5 or 10 weighed sayers of salt per bora should be allowed to purchasers. That's about 1%. The sheer extent of the local people's rights in the salt is revealed in the records of the moment the company further sequestered the towns of Nawa and Godha in 1838 to punish Jodhpur for continuing to resist their demands. 
what had become abundantly clear during the Gunga Ram affair was the incompleteness to British eyes of the traditional way the salt accounts were drawn up at Sampar and the necessity of creating much more comprehensive accounts that included all gifts of salt if they were to avoid a Gunga Ram situation ever happening again. Once the trial of Gunga Ram was over then, the British decided to replace Ludlow with a stickler for exact accounting and also for upstanding British moral values, Lieutenant Robert Morrison. In July 1838, Morrison described the scene that met him on his arrival in Nawa. I was in no way surprised to find that a large portion of the salt in store was claimed by booperies and pensioners as private property, which, however, I was no ways disposed to allow to be removed as such. Some part of this was never even weighed out by the government servants, the claimants, as they allege, having been permitted to extract for themselves, whilst another part came into their hands by purchase from the Jodhpur troops stationed at the place to whom assignments of salt in lieu of pay had been made. The receipts which these different parties show in confirmation of their claims are quite unworthy of credit. These were clearly long-standing rights, but Morrison refused to understand this. He saw it as nothing more or less than state robbery. Morrison had never met an Indian whom he didn't suspect of trying to rip him off. As Alv's secretary during the Gungaram affair, he viewed the Samper establishment as a hotbed of corruption that needed to learn the, quote, dread of discovery under his watchful control. He saw his job as the maximisation of revenue extraction for the British and the minimisation of as many irregularities and alternative claims on the salt as he could get away with. And although he was commended for his effective management, he also began to find himself regularly reprimanded for going too far, suggesting radical reforms that the company saw as entirely inappropriate given the caretaker nature of their superintendents at Sampar. The reason we have such detailed and meticulous accounts for Sampar pensions is because Morrison treated every single one of them with suspicion. In order to regularise charitable payments from Sampar Lake revenues, he required claimants to furnish him with proof, to his satisfaction, that the salt was, by right, theirs, and that proof had to be a verified statement from the Jaipur or Jodhpur court, or their appearance on an authenticated court list. Otherwise, he refused to pay out. Things came to a head when Morrison entirely withheld the Burr's historic perquisites to the tune of 3,000 rupees in one year, and proposed to his superiors that they be abolished altogether, because he entirely misunderstood the role of the burrs in the extraction of salt. He viewed them as worse than useless. The situation had got so bad that the burrs went on strike over their unpaid perquisites, and Morrison was trying to break it by bringing in ordinary, unskilled labourers. The new agent, Colonel Sutherland, asked Ludlow to weigh in with his depth of knowledge of traditional practices at Sampar, gained by his investigations into the Gunga Ram affair. Ludlow pointed out that without the Burr's traditional skills and knowledge, commercial quantities of salt could never be extracted at Sampar, 
and could not be replaced with... ...services of inexperienced persons. Ludlow understood that this was why... The Burrs are largely invested with rights, privileges and perquisites in which others, including Brahmins and mendicants, shared from a desire which has always been manifested by the proprietors of the lake to dispense something in charity in all concerns connected with a spot where nature has strewn her bounty with lavish and inexhaustible profusion. This was why Miley's salt stipend was so important to her. But why was paying Miley and Salt so important that Jaipur and Jodhpur went out of their way to fulfil her demand, in defiance of Lieutenant Morrison? I suspect they all rather relished the opportunity to poke Morrison in the eye. But the columns and lists and figures of the Sampar Lake accounts try to hide the fact that Miley's Salt stipend was a gift to her and to Jaipur from the goddess Shakampari Devi and it likewise sealed a bond of mutual loyalty and protection between her, the state she served, and its ultimate ruler, the god Govindevji, bonds that could not be broken without dishonour. Salt, state, the gods and the courtesans of Jaipur and Jodhpur were tightly bound together until the British reduced Sambar salt to a mere commodity to be sold. This podcast is part of the project Histories of the Ephemeral, writing on music in late Mughal India, sponsored by the British Academy in association with the British Library. For more episodes and information, email catherine.schofield at kcl.ac.uk. Miley Dancing Girl versus the East India Company was written by me, Catherine Butler-Schofield, and is based on my original research. The additional voices were Michael Bywater, Chris Elkham and Kanav Gupta. The producer was Chris Elkham. With thanks to the British Academy, the India Office Collections at the British Library, the National Archives of India, the European Research Council, Norbert Peabody, Paul Schofield and Rinalini Venkateswaran. Information on the Jaipur Gunajan Khana is taken from the work of Joan Erdman and material on Jaipur's political life from the work of Charles Tillotson and Mordica Horstman. Although Jaipur was not founded until 1727, we have used it earlier in place of Amer to avoid confusion. Records of Jaipur Karana Doyen Kesarabai Kerka are courtesy of the Archive of Indian Music and Vikram Sampat. The Sarangi recording of Rag Peravi is reproduced with thanks to Nicholas McGreal. <laughs>